an official message from Medicare. A new law is helping me save more money on prescription drug costs. Maybe you can save too. With Medicare's Extra Help program, my premium is zero and my out-of-pocket costs are low. Who should apply? Single people making less than $23,000 a year or married couples who make less than $31,000 a year. Even if you don't think you qualify, it pays to find out. Go to ssa.gov slash extra help. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. An official message from Medicare. A new law is helping me save more money on prescription drug costs. Maybe you can save too. With Medicare's Extra Help program, my premium is zero and my out-of-pocket costs are low. Who should apply? Single people making less than $23,000 a year or married couples who make less than $31,000 a year. Even if you don't think you qualify, it pays to find out. Go to ssa.gov slash extra help. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Richard! Richard! Oh, are we on? Welcome to the Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. All right. Let's get this party started. Welcome to Radio Free Canada News Notes and Opinions for Monday, November the 29th. As always, I'd love to hear from you. The email is richard at saga960am.ca. Richard at saga960am.ca. I'm just going to give uh, my technical producer, Jacob, a little heads up here. I have the, uh, the, the audio clips out of order. So kind of scrambling on a Monday, but... The uh, the first one I'm going to ask for, I'll give you the cue here, Jacob, is I think it's labeled Dr. Trevor Phillips, even though it's not Dr. Trevor Phillips. Anyway, I digress. So uh, the point is, I have a family member in South Africa and she was planning on coming home for Christmas. And it's been a while since we've seen her and we're all looking forward to it, to it. And uh, that's not happening. Obviously, she won't get to see her mom or her cousins or aunts or uncles or her grandmother. Because of this ridiculous mass hysteria fueled by the media and politicians and public health officials, it's all utter nonsense. Omicron, the latest variant. And from all indications, it is mild. Zero deaths reported in South Africa and Botswana, where the first cases were reported. But don't take my word for it. Here is um, 
it's labeled incorrectly. It says Dr. Trevor Phillips, Jacob, but it's uh, it's actually South African government professor Barry Shub uh, discussing the new variant. Because it's got all these mutations, does it in fact destabilize the virus? It might make it less fit than Delta. So far, the cases have been pretty mild. And if you know, we have a hospital surveillance uh, program as well, and that hasn't shown any significant uptick. All right, because it's mutated, it has so many mutations, it's very unstable. So that's, uh, again, that's Professor Barry Schwab. He was on the Trevor Phillips show on Sky TV. Now, here's the South African doctor who first spotted the new variant. Looking at the mildness of the symptoms that we are seeing, currently there's no reason for panicking as we don't see severely ill patients. I also checked with the hospitals, some of the hospitals in my area, and one of the biggest hospitals they only have one patient currently that's COVID positive on a ventilator, and they don't even know whether it's COVID, uh, you know, it's Delta or whether it is um, Omicron related. We acknowledge that it might change going forward. But the hype that's been created currently out there in the media and worldwide doesn't correlate with the clinical picture. Um, and it doesn't warrant to just cut us off from any traveling and ban South Africa as if we are the villains in the whole process. It should not be like that. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. So, a couple people show up with a new variant. I'd like to actually know how they tell which variant we're dealing with. Does the PCR test tell them that? Does the, the rapid antigen test? How do they know whether it's Delta or Omicron? I'll ask uh, Dr. Patrick Phillips a little bit later. Perhaps he can tell me. I just found that curious. However, so a couple of people show up with a new variant, one person in hospital on a ventilator, in either South Africa or Botswana, they don't even know if it's related to the Omicron variant. And all of a sudden, they're closing borders and canceling flights and banning people from arriving from South Africa. So I won't get to see my niece this Christmas. Anyway, it's uh, no matter that it's mild and it's non-lethal. Maybe maybe we should open the borders wide open. Maybe we should prioritize 
those that are infected with Omicron to come to Canada so we can get all we can all get this mild form of COVID and be done with it. Natural immunity from an infection. 27 times more powerful than from the vaccine. There is an idea. Let's open up the borders. If you have Omicron, please come. Cough on my salad. So again, the first reaction from our leaders and public health officials to a new variant that looks like a bad cold is to panic, naturally. All right, this is very curious. Have a listen uh, uh, to this. This is the uh, the movie clip. Do you have that one? I told you for the last time I don't want any more of this nonsense. Giorgio! Antonio! Now you stay with me, dear. Giorgio! Antonio! I don't want you running off like this! Giorgio! Antonio! Now I'm telling you, this is the last time we're coming to the park and I'm not making any more warnings. Now you hear me? Signorina, signorina, guardi! What? What, dear? What is it? saying what the heck are you playing on the radio program well i'll tell you what that's the opening of a 1963 italian french comedy sci-fi movie what a genre eh? comedy sci-fi italian french and the storyline and most of it most of it is in in italian but the opening there was in english and The storyline goes something like this. An alien infects his human host and takes over his body in an attempt to learn more about humans and take over the uh, the planet. That's the premise of this 1963 Italian-French comedy sci-fi thriller. Anyone want to guess the name of the film? Anyone? It's Omicron. Omicron. Oh, come on. You got to be. No, I'm not. I'm serious. That's the name of the film. Anyone find that just a tad coincidental? You got to be kidding me. Nope. Uh, Check it out on YouTube. Omicron. And uh, the opening, I say, as I say, is in English, but most of the film is in Italian. If anyone can find a copy of this movie, Omicron, with English subtitles, let me know, because I'd love to see it. Now, uh. No secret, I'm no fan of the Federal Conservative Party. They have a weak and feckless leader. They've utterly failed to live up to uh, conservative principles. They have nothing but scorn and contempt for social conservative members, who, by the way, do the bulk of the donating and volunteering for the party. But I do like Pierre Polyev for the most part. I mean, he's on the wrong side of a number of very important issues as far as I'm concerned, but he's far and away, far and away the best of the worst. And he really should be the leader of that party. And I suspect he will be before the next election. Just a hunch. But here he is. This is delicious. Here he is making a CBC reporter look ridiculous, which is a reason enough to support Polyev. This is a perfect example of how utterly disconnected most reporters and journalists are in this country. Most of us are are reeling, reeling from inflation. The soaring prices at the gas bar and the grocery store. It's really hurting the working class. 
And all the CBC wants to talk about is the vaccine status of a few conservative MPs. Here's how that exchange sounded. Um, so you told my colleague in French that you are double vaccinated. Mark Holland, the House leader, was saying yesterday that there are a number of exemptions in your caucus and that they are statistically and that's statistically unlikely. He didn't really tell us how many people in your caucus are exempted. So I just want, I'm just wondering, what's your response to that? Are there a number of exemptions that uh, your colleagues are you know, saying that they have? Uh, and if you just want to respond to what he said. Yeah, listen, uh, Mark Holland's not a doctor. What he is is a politician. And the only thing he's trying to accomplish is to distract people from his inflation tax. I mean, the number one issue facing Canadians that they want, the people want addressed in this speech from the throne is the skyrocketing cost of living. Liberals who have caused that crisis now want to distract from it by talking about everything else uh, under the sun. Um, and I reiterate the Liberals must announce a plan to end the inflation tax in today's speech from the throne. That's what Canadians and Conservatives are demanding. Well handled by Pierre Polyev. But the CBC reporter, he doesn't get it. He persisted. I mean, he should be embarrassed by his line of questioning. That's asking too much. I mean, but how is this relevant? Is it any wonder the CBC has zero viewers? They're irrelevant. And they ask irrelevant questions. Good for Pierre Polyev for this response. Have a listen to this. Just just a quick follow up. Believe me, I don't want to ask you keep asking you these questions about how many people have vaccinated. I'm sure I'm sure you do. But no, uh, no, no, yes, I go don't. On. I really don't. But so can you put it to rest? How many of your MPs? How, how would vaccinated I vaccinated? And the exemptions. Are there any conservative MPs that have exemptions? How would you expect me to know that you think I'm going to pick up the phone and distract from my work fighting inflation to call every member of parliament and ask them that question? You're falling into the liberal trap. They don't want to talk about their inflation tax. They want to talk about anything else. And so um, Mark Holland can pretend that he's a doctor when really is all he is is a spin doctor who's trying to avoid taking responsibility for the hundreds of thousands of 28 and 29 year old Canadian kids who can't afford a house and are stuck in their parents' basement. Or for the single mother who takes a walk up and down the grocery aisle and realizes she can't afford to put nutritious food on her children's table. Or the working class guy who pulls up to the gas station and only fills up a quarter tank because he can't afford to pay the rest of the cost. Liberals don't want to talk about those people. They want to talk about anything else. Uh, and that's the only reason Mark, Mark Holland made those comments. All right. Pierre Polyev. Actually, his response to the reporter should be none of your damn business. Uh, good grief. Our news media in this country are appallingly bad. What did this guy win his journalism diploma in a raffle? I'm not sure. Good gracious. We are in trouble. All right. Busy show. Uh, Walt Heyer, uh, who is now an elderly man, underwent uh, gender reassignment surgery and lived for eight years as a woman named Laura Jensen before regretting and reversing his uh, sex change. Uh, he'll be with us in the second hour. Uh, Dr. Patrick Phillips, our small town family physician and lover of freedom, will be here to talk about Omicron as well. Uh, but first, uh, we pay a lot of attention to VAERS. That's the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System in the U.S. Uh, but what about in Europe? Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? 
President Biden's administration is making major decisions and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. They have their own version. And according to the European Union's official database, the European Medicines Agency, through November 13th, get this, a total of 30,551 fatalities and 1.1 million adverse events due to COVID-19 vaccines. Art Moore from WND is next with that story. We're back as the Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk Saga 960 AM. Welcome back. A total of 30,551 fatalities and 1.1 million adverse events due to COVID-19 vaccines have been reported by the European Union's official database, uh, which keeps track of vaccine uh, injuries and deaths uh, here with more on the story is Art Moore, author at World Net Daily or WND, I should say, WND at WND.com is the website. He's also co-author of the best-selling book, See Something, Say Nothing. Art, welcome back. How are you? Hey, thanks, Richard. Doing well, doing well. I uh, trust you had a good uh, Thanksgiving holiday long weekend. Yes, thank you. I did. It was really nice. Had all our kids and uh, yeah, it was really good. Fantastic. So the um, the European equivalent of VAERS, uh, they're reporting 30,551 fatalities, 1.1 million adverse events. And that is through, I believe, November the, the 13th. Uh, so I'm, I'm not sure if it's if it's uh, increased significantly since then. But um, is the reporting system similar to VAERS? Uh, are there any major differences between how events are reported to their system or database versus uh, uh, VAERS reporting system? Yeah, as far as I know, it's it's very similar. And, and it is uh, physicians who are reporting this and uh, they have to you know, answer a lot of questions. And so uh, on one hand, you can say, well, it, these are not completely verified, but but these are actual licensed physicians who are, are reporting these things. And the thing to realize is that there have been uh, studies done as to just to try to estimate how accurate or, or how, how should we see this in terms of the overall population? Does it represent, uh, you know, only a fraction of them overreporting? And uh, some critics want to say, well, you know, you know, it's it's perhaps overreporting, but uh, there was a study that was done on the U.S. system, VAERS, and they concluded that it represents only about 1% of vaccine injuries. Now, to qualify that, you know, in, you know previous uh, vaccines didn't get the kind of attention or the, you know, heavy politics uh, embedded in it that, that we have now. So there's all different kinds of factors, but, but I think, you know, most people are looking at us and saying, uh, you know, with, with VAERS and, and the report, 
reporting of bears, by the way, is some 18,800 deaths set through November 12th and 1.7 million adverse events, that, that that does represent a fraction of the vaccine injuries. Right. So I, I think, that, yeah, the, I think it was the it was called the Lazarus study, um, which yeah. I, think, I think came out of Harvard. And yeah, they're based on this study. They're saying one percent of of all adverse events are actually re, reported to VAERS, which does in a, in a way seem to line up with what I'm hearing. And I've had a lot of uh, you know uh, physicians and immunologists and so forth on this program. And they're saying that what they're hearing is doctors are very hesitant uh, to report adverse events now to VAERS. So let's let's be really conservative and say it's not one. It's, um, you know, it's you don't multiply it by 100. You multiply it by 10. Um, so we're still looking at possibly 180,000, um, uh, you know, fatalities due to to the vaccine. I, again, correlation is not causation. We understand that. But uh, and the um, the numbers in Europe. Do we know if if uh, that's also like low balled, like one percent, ten percent of actual events? I think so, and and I and I don't want to go you know outside of of my knowledge, but but I, I I do think it's a similar kind of reporting system, and there's a similar political dynamic at work in Europe where the hesitancy to report these deaths, and and, and you're right. Uh, in fact. Project Veritas, which does these undercover video investigations where they have people going in camera, uh, representing themselves as being you know, part of a company. In this case, Pfizer, uh, there was a big uh, probe that Project Veritas did of Pfizer. And, and they found some of these scientists there, uh, you know, ad- ad- admitting some things uh, about these vaccines and, uh, that... Uh, People have suspected, you know, uh, for, for thing, you know, regarding the, the efficacy, but also the fact that uh, they're they're very intent on on any kind of adverse effects. And uh, there was uh, a whistleblower who just came forward. Uh, this was after the Project Veritas investigation, who uh, said, "Hey, during the clinical trials, they broke all of the rules, and uh, in in this effort to get these vaccines out really fast." Uh, you know, they, 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 according to this whistleblower, covered up some, some pretty serious adverse effects. And you have to understand that on average, it takes about five to 10 years for a vaccine to come to market. And, and in case we're talking about less than a year, uh, and, and of course, you understand, you know, the, the urgency. Uh, but the fact is, is that we, we can't just say, uh, okay, we have the vaccines and they're all fine. They're all safe, which, which is what we heard people like Dr. Anthony Fauci say. Uh, we, we have to also just be open and say, okay, there's a benefit analysis and, and maybe we're going to take it. But what what is that? But the fact is, is that now we're looking at vaccinating kids here in America and the, 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 the stats that we have over the course of 18 months show us that statistically they're they're also, um, at no risk of death. There, there have been just a handful of cases. It's comparable to uh, the seasonal flu uh, in terms of fatalities, which is very, very rare among uh, among children. Art, we'll take a quick time out, come back and discuss further. Art Moore, author at WND, co-author of the best-selling book, See Something, Say Nothing. Back with more in three minutes. 
Let's get back at it on News Talk Saga 960 AM. It's the Richard Serrett Show. Welcome back. Art Moore from WND is here. We're talking about the number of uh, adverse events, injuries and fatalities being reported to the European Union's official uh, database or the uh, European Union's equivalent of VAERS. 30,551 fatalities, 1.1 million adverse events. Um, the World Health Organization, they, they also have their own uh, reporting system. Now, uh, is that uh, separate from VAERS and uh, the European Union, or is it a um, is it uh, basically inclusive of all the various uh, adverse reporting systems around the world? Do you know? Yeah, actually, I I, I assume it's called Vigia Access, and uh, my understanding is is that uh, that people report directly to it. But I I don't know if it actually includes VAERS as well, but. Uh, it's a pretty big number that they've compiled for uh, for for the for the COVID nineteen vaccines. It's like two point five million now, and um, you compare that to to previous vaccines, and, uh, and and again, obviously, more attention has been paid to this vaccine, so reporting could be affected by that. But uh, you, you look at you know nineteen sixty eight to to two thousand twenty one, a period. Of, um, of, of more than 50 years, only 272,000 adverts. And then just for you know, these past two years, the COVID vaccine, 2.5 million. And um, so uh, th- th- this is the thing is, is that, you know, it, on one hand, you can say, yes, hundreds of millions of people have been vaccinated or hundreds of millions of, of shots in our country. Uh, and and so the percentage is low, but but you have to compare it to previous um, uh, vaccines, and also uh, what is the risk for certain age groups? And again, with children, um, if, if you're going to see uh, you, know, you know even even you know a few thousand uh, vaccine deaths, uh, and, and you're going to say, well, you know, millions and millions of kids have been vaccinated. Compare those few thousand deaths to zero or, or five or, or, or a very small number. Uh, every, every one counts. And, and it's, if it's your kid, it really counts. Right. And we go back to 1976 with the swine flu vaccine. There were 32 deaths reported. Uh, it was either 28 or 32, depending on your source. Uh, and they pulled the vaccine after 32 deaths. Uh, and right. here we have uh, 18,000, according to uh, to to uh, to VAERS and um we're still dealing with this vaccine. Um, it's interesting to me, Art, I get your thoughts on this, how the media loves to kind of, uh, you know, brush Varys aside and, and you know, it's almost like, oh, it's a conspiracy theory. Yet Varys is, is administered by the CDC. They sort of created this system in order to look out for safety signals for these vaccines. So, I mean, they can't have it both ways. They can't... Uh, you know, they can't be so dismissive of it when, in fact, it was created by the CDC to keep track of these sorts of things. That's exactly right. Uh, and, and the interesting thing is uh, the Federal Drug Administration, the, the, the FDA here in the states, which is responsible for uh, weighing in on these vaccines and determining that you know, they should be approved. You have uh, 
these members of the panel and, and they've had uh, several different uh yeah so you've had several different um panels uh on, on different age groups and the most recent was the ages five to eleven and uh and i listened to quite a few hours of their discussion and when it came to the kids uh they were concerned about this data that they were seeing uh on the bears website and saying uh, hey hey look um we we really would like to just focus this on kids who have uh long-term you know comorbidities or really serious conditions we don't want all the help to get this but we're kind of stuck because it's or, or it's we either say yes or we say no and one of these um experts and they pick you know you know eminent physicians and research to research to be on this panel uh dr rubin he's the of the new england of medicine the perhaps the preeminent medical journal in our country and he said basically we're just going to have to do this and see what happens in other words we're going to kind of experiments on these kids and then if something bad happens maybe we'll reassess right roll the dice uh because otherwise we have no data uh, we have no data so let's just roll the dice and see what happens we have no data on ivermectin so let's not use it we have no data on vaccinating five to 11 year olds so let's just take the risk yeah it makes no sense uh art tell us a little bit about see something say nothing yeah, it, you know, really, it's the story of Philip Haney, who was a, an Islam subject matter expert uh, in the Homeland Security Department from his being after 9-11. And it, it shows how political correctness regarding Islam, you know, recognizing that the majority of Muslims around the world are, are peaceful people, but that there's a radical element that, that our country is not taking seriously and, and actually is is uh, influenced by in, in different ways. Uh, uh, they're, they've been controlling our national security policy. And, and Philip Haney was punished nine times for simply connecting the dots and following the evidence where it led. How do we get a copy? Yeah, uh, you can Amazon.com and it's available both in, in Kindle and uh, in paperback. Art, always appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Hey, my pleasure, Richard. Art Moore, WND. All right. When we come back, an Alberta-based rental housing provider says it hopes to set a precedent with its decision to require proof of COVID-19 vaccinations from new tenants. Rebel News reporter Dakota Christensen is next with that story. You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga, 960 AM. Hey, everyone knows that if you want to get stronger, you should exercise. And if you want to support your immune system response this season, take super strength oregano products from North American Herb and Spice. There's no substitute for super strength oregano, the original truly wild organic oregano oil that's produced by old fashioned steam distillation. Whether you prefer it as an oil or a vegan gel cap, it has the ingredients your body needs to help support a healthy immune response. Super strength oregano products from North American Herb and Spice are available at health food stores across the GTA or online at oregano.com. Visit the website, sign up for the North American Herb and Spice newsletter and receive 5% off your online orders. The website again, oregano.com. Spell it with me, O-R-E-G-A-N-O-L, O-R-E-G-A-N-O-L, O-R-E-G-A-N-O-L. 
super strength oregano products from North American Herb and Spice at oregano.com. All right, an Alberta-based rental housing provider says it hopes to set a precedent with its decision to require proof of COVID-19 vaccinations from new tenants. Dakota Christensen is a reporter with Rebel News. Hey, Dakota, how are you? I'm doing great, Richard. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. So tell me about Strategic Group, this uh, rental housing company. Mm -hmm. Well, essentially, um, this was a story that was broke by Canadian press. A strategic strategic group, sorry, is a rental company. They own about 1,500 one- and two-bedroom suites in rental apartment buildings throughout Edmonton and Calgary. And they have implemented this new vaccine policy. They believe they are the first major landlord in Canada to do so, requiring any new prospective tenants to have proof of vaccination against COVID-19. And what about existing tenants? If you already live in one of their units, do you have to then show proof of vaccination or be evicted or what happens to them? So existing tenants under their policy are allowed to stay, but they are not allowed to use certain amenities like gyms or party rooms or other sort of uh, non-essential amenities as they would deem them, but they are allowed to stay. So it is exclusively in terms of renting out an apartment, only new tenants, but they still are already changing the agreement with existing tenants as far as using certain amenities. And so, uh, again, if you're looking uh, for a place to live uh, and you go to strategic group and you look at one of their their suites and you decide you'd like to rent it, you're not allowed to rent one of their units unless you can show proof of a vaccination. Are there any exemptions allowed for? Mm -hmm. Well, I actually just got a response from them today. I uh, sent an email asking them this, whether they allow for exemptions. And their response was that only medical exemptions as per certain uh, certain bylaws with the province and with the city, they allow medical exemptions, but nothing else. So if you try to seek an exemption on religious grounds or on human rights grounds, on creed, anything like that, they do not recognize it. Only medical exemptions as issued by a doctor will they recognize. Uh, Are they uh, legally allowed to do this? Have you sought out any legal analysis on this issue? Yeah, so this is a very interesting thing. Um, I included in my article I wrote on this, there was a legal analysis posted in Lawyers Daily um, back in, I believe it was August. And they go through there. And in that analysis, it's actually titled, Can Landlords Demand Tenants Be Vaccinated, Unvaccinated? And they go through and it seems there are some gray areas and it's you know a little tough, but for the most part, it would seem before these times now that this would be highly illegal, discriminatory on its face to tell someone you cannot, to, to sort of discriminate between the people who are trying to lease an apartment, you cannot lease a unit with us unless you are vaccinated or otherwise. And what really struck me as I was reading through the initial article on this story was that it felt like I was being gaslighted. Like they keep saying, you know what? No, this is okay. This is legal. Everyone we're talking to says this is normal and it's for your health and protection. And yet we're totally allowed to do this. But looking at the law, it would seem to me that this is at least to a certain degree, rather discriminatory, particularly when I think of the tenants already living there, it's a change to their agreement to suddenly say, no, these amenities that were part of your agreement, you're not allowed to use anymore unless you are vaccinated. 
Right. Well, uh, and it's it also would seem to be in violation of the Privacy Act. Uh, I mean, all of these vaccine mandates uh, on, on the surface would, would seem to be in violation of federal legislation, the Privacy Act, no matter. Uh, they seem to be going through with it anyway. Is it your I mean, have you spoken with anyone in the rental housing association? Is there a sense that this these this group strategic group is the first? Is there any sense that this could become widespread, this practice? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, another point. So John Dickey is the president of the Canadian Federation of Apartment Associations. And he said this is the first that he has seen out of any you know, major landlords or companies who offer rental housing. Um, and he said he would be surprised to see this be more, more widespread. Personally, I would not be surprised. And the owner of Strategic Group was really boasting about this, how they're, they're hoping to lead a path and set a precedent and I would not be surprised if I saw more places start to implement this because it just seems one step at a time they're trying to normalize vaccine mandates in this way and requiring the vaccine for all sorts of services to be provided. But uh, this just really strikes me as, as one of the first ones for something truly essential, like housing, that they're requiring the COVID-19 vaccine for someone just to lease an apartment. Did you happen to mention to the people at Strategic Group that the vaccinated are just as likely to transmit the infection as the unvaccinated? Mm, they seem to uh, not accept that. Uh, the president of strategic group said that, uh, like I mentioned, she said she's very proud of their policy and believes it'll help to end the pandemic faster. And they seem to kind of follow along the lines of, well, it's the unvaccinated that are causing this. If only we had complete compliance, then we'd be through this. That seems to be the line they're trying to toe here. Ah, right. Never mind the science. It's just uh, more virtue signaling. All right, Dakota, thank you so much. Good work. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you. Dakota Christensen is a a reporter with Rebel News. All right. When we come back, our small town family physician uh, and lover of freedom, Dr. Patrick Phillips, will be here with a few words about the Omicron variant. Stay with us. Back to the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 a.m. of this hysteria over this mild, apparently non-lethal variant Omicron is, I just find it fascinating. How did these, uh, how did this uh, variant get to Australia? You can't even get into the country, can you? I mean, you you certainly can't fly there unvaccinated. It's supposed to be a, a South African variant and all of a sudden it's showing up in the UK. All of the cases, uh, the original cases in South Africa and Botswana were among the, the vaccinated. And again, we, we, we heard from a doctor who's right there in the, uh, I guess, the center of where the outbreak, if you can call it that, took place. And she said, no, this is very mild, very mild. One person in hospital on a ventilator in the hospital there, and they're not even sure if that person has Delta or Omicron or what. And yet, again, Public officials, politicians, rush to judgment, panic, close the borders, ban flights from South Africa. Uh, and no doubt they'll use this as, a, as an excuse to uh, clamp down further on restrictions. Here to discuss uh, further is our small town family and ER physician and lover of freedom, Dr. Patrick Phillips. Hey, Patrick, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Richard? Very well. Thank you. Uh, you pointed out uh, or you on, on your Twitter, the uh, the number of cases or the number of fatalities in South uh, South Africa. I mean, they were 
they were really having a hard go of it. There were um, hundreds of, of people that were dying at the height of uh, COVID um, every day. And uh, and now with, you know, since they're talking about this new variant there, uh, it's it's been reduced by something like 93 percent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're uh, uh, yeah, they're not exactly hurting for COVID right now. Um yeah, in South Africa, yeah, it's it's down significantly, but uh, yes, I think um, even more um, interesting, actually, in South Africa is that just days before um, they announced this uh, this variant, uh, South Africa actually asked Pfizer uh, if they could uh, stop shipping uh, vaccine to their country because uh, there is no demand for the vaccine, and then a few days later, they announced this uh, this variant. But uh, you bring up a good, some good points as well, especially around travel, right? Uh, for most places, and especially Australia, you have to be vaccinated to travel. And so um, uh, this, this uh, disease seems to be uh, picked up primarily among the vaccinated. Uh, if you think of the two cases, uh, four cases originally in Botswana, they were all, both, they were all fully vaccinated, but they were also travelers. Um, so... And actually, if you look at it, all the countries where these uh, these have shown up, um, uh, it's throughout all of Europe. They're in Israel. They're in Australia. Uh, we have them even here in Ontario. So it, it begs the question if these even originated in these places that have very low uh, vaccination rates. It seems to be mostly travelers. But uh, but yes, uh, this uh, this brings it back to the fundamentals, right? What drives uh, mutations in this virus. And uh, I have to say it's primarily people who have very narrow immunity uh, to a previous version of, uh, of COVID, the wild type variant that's not even circulating anymore. That's what, that's what the vaccines give you immunity to. So it creates this uh, uh, huge advantage uh, if, if the virus mutates um, so it can evade the immunity to that old spike protein, then it's going to be able to spread like wildfire among among the vaccinated. Uh, so I think, um, especially with this variant, I, I'm not convinced that it's anything to be worried about at all, but it's just more of the same, which is vaccine failure, right? This is uh, more proof that the vaccines are not uh, doing what they told us they would do, which is to stop the virus. I, um, I've always been curious to know how they identify in a patient a variant. Uh, so d- does a PCR test tell you which variant you have? How do they know if you've had if you have the Delta variant or the new Omicron variant? How is that tested? Uh, so they have to actually take it to a lab and do a separate test, which is uh, genetic sequencing to be able to, to determine that. Yeah, so they're definitely not doing that routinely. Um, they kind of have to take a few random samples uh, to be able to do that. Are you seeing any, uh, uh, well, I know you've sort of taken a, a bit of a leave of absence, but um, mm-hmm. are you hearing from any of your colleagues? Have, have they seen any any uh, cases of Omicron? No, I think there's only two in, in the whole province. Um, yeah, no, not that, I, not that I know of. There's not really... Um, much of a surge or anything that I've heard of. And if you look at, if we go based on where it 
the most of the cases are, like you said, in South Africa, seem to be extremely mild with most people not even need, needing to be hospitalized at all. Isn't that so, the way, though, that, that, that variants typically work with upper rep- respiratory viruses, that each variant becomes, uh, well, maybe more, more contagious, but, but less lethal? Yeah, that's that's generally uh, the advantage. That's the selective pressure put on them that they become more contagious but less lethal because that allows what allows them to spread uh, the most. Um, and that seems to be what uh, what we're seeing with uh, Omicron. Uh, the hysteria around it uh, just seems to be more of the same of uh, stoking fear in the population in order to uh, clamp down and take away more freedoms. Well, I mentioned earlier, and I was only half kidding, uh, if this variant is, in fact, uh, very mild, maybe maybe we should just open the floodgates and, and invite people uh, with uh, Omicron variant to come here and and we should all get it. If we're going to get one variant of of COVID-19 and develop natural immunity, which is 27 times more powerful than vaccine immunity, according to some major studies, this this would be the variant to get right. That's that's exactly right. I mean, I think it's too early to know entirely um, how mild this is. But yes, you're absolutely right that if, if this is uh, shown to be a very mild variant, we should absolutely let it spread around because natural immunity is by far the most robust, longest lasting and uh, um, uh, most powerful immunity that you can have. So I agree. If, if this does prove to be uh, uh, very mild, that's great news. And uh uh, it should spread natural immunity around the world. Uh, any updates on your um, your legal battles with the College of Physicians and Surgeons? Uh, mo- mostly just back and forth a little bit now with uh, um, their uh, uh, decisions. They, they made a decision uh, not uh, to give me an interim suspension of my license, uh, which I guess is some good news. Uh, but we're are still going ahead with the, the court date on uh, on January 7th um, over uh, my ability to speak about my cases. All right. And uh, again, the uh, the crowdfunding campaign to raise money for your legal defense is givesendgo.com slash Patrick Phillips, MD. Givesendgo.com slash Patrick Phillips, MD. Uh, We'll speak again soon, I hope. Thanks so much, Dr. Phillips. Thanks so much, Richard. Take care. All right. When we come back, hour two, plenty of show remains. We'll speak with uh, Walt Meyer, or sorry, Walt Heyer, who uh, underwent gender reassignment surgery and lived for eight years as a woman named Laura Jensen before regretting and reversing his sex change. And we'll uh, also revisit an earlier conversation with an associate professor in the Department of Chemistry at McGill University who can no longer receive federal grant money for his important research uh, because he's decided to hire based on merit rather than the color of one's skin. Back with more of the Richard Serrett Show after the news. Don't go away. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. The Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk Saga 960 AM. All right, welcome back. A little bit later this hour, 
an associate professor in the Department of Chemistry at McGill University. Uh, we'll replay that conversation from last week. Dr. Kaubampati says he can't get uh, federal grants to continue his important research, uh, essentially because he's not woke enough. He doesn't speak the language of the woke and the cult of diversity in this country. Uh, who are in charge of the purse strings when it comes to doling out federal grant money. And um, this is because when he's doing his research, obviously he needs assistance. He needs to hire assistance. And he's pretty clear. He hires based on merit, as it should be, not based on the color of their skin. And that's really what's happening in in this country, not only here, but um, really throughout the Western world. It's very disconcerting, to say the least. Walt Hayer will be here. He's our feature guest today. He went, uh, he underwent what he describes as a misdiagnosis for gender dysphoria when he was young. And then he underwent gender reassignment surgery and lived for eight years as a woman named Laura Jensen uh, before regretting and then reversing his sex change. And uh, he'll be here as well. So yesterday at Queens Park, I believe there were only three MPPs who voted against the progressive conservatives motion eight, which sought to extend the government's emergency powers until the end of March. These emergency powers, of course, uh, were granted through bill 195 last year. And uh, the motion passed with the help of the opposition NDP, some opposition What's worse, the vote was done by voice. In other words, there was no recorded vote. We have no record of how your MPP voted on the motion, which to me is just complete cowardice. Belinda Carajalios is the new blue MPP for Cambridge. Belinda, welcome once again. How are you? Hey, Richard. Thanks so much for having me. I'm well. How are you? I'm well. Thank you. Now, we should point out you were unable to uh, to vote at Queen's Park. Do you want to tell us what happened? Yeah. So I refused to disclose my um, vaccine status. And because of that, I'm required to um, test twice a week or however oftentimes because it's only, it only is good for 48 hours of test uh, in order to access Queen's Park. Um, so, you know, the Sunday of the start of the week last week, I took the test. Negative. Great. Went to Queen's Park Monday, Tuesday. Then Wednesday night, I went to my local pharmacy to get another test done so I could access the legislature on Thursday. So I did not go to the legislature on Wednesday. And it came back positive. Now, the pharmacist was so surprised because at the time I wasn't exhibiting any symptoms. He did a second test, which also came back positive. Um, and at that point, I was required by public health to go for a PCR test to confirm the fact that I was positive. Um, once I got the results of the PCR test on Saturday morning, I had to notify the legislature and they were very clear that um, because of that, I was not able to attend the Ontario legislature and um, I'm under quarantine until the 29th of November. How are you now, Belinda? How are you? Do you have any symptoms? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky. Like I have, I'm asthmatic. So of course you talk respiratory viruses and, you know, a little bit of anxiety comes along with that, but I had a little back pain. I had a headache. I've lost my sense of smell, my sense of taste. But other than that, I'm okay. All right. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. 
so you weren't able to vote and they made no accommodation. You couldn't vote uh, electronically uh, or a proxy. That seems bizarre, you know, in the in an age of rampant technology that they wouldn't find an accommodation to allow you to vote. Yeah. So the, the standing orders are the rules that we have to live by as as members of provincial parliament. And there's currently no standing order that says that we can participate in parliament um, virtually or to even vote virtually. Now, in order for that to happen, um, a, a member who is physically present in the Ontario legislature would have to um, raise a unanimous consent motion. So say, you know, that they want to be able to uh, conduct business virtually. And then everyone who is present in the legislature at that time would have to agree to that in order for those rules to hold. And that has not been done. Um, I suspect it will not be done. And so because of that, I have not been able to participate in the recent debate or vote on motion. Eight. Yeah, that, that, that is strange, given that, uh, you know, the, the federal parliament, it's all done virtu- uh, virtual, it seems. And in fact, it's rumored that uh, Trudeau and uh, the NDP leader uh, want to continue conducting parliament uh, virtually. Uh, I mean, you don't want to go that way either, but uh, there should be some accommodation for, for uh, individuals, uh, MPPs who want to vote and are unable to for whatever reason. Now, so this motion aid, why, first of all, is it called a motion? Why isn't this not like a, a private member's bill or or why why motion? So it's because it's an extension of a, of a bill that's already in place. So Bill 195, the Reopening Ontario Act, or the lockdown bill, as we've been liking to call it, um, that bill uh, has a sunset clause. So after exactly two years, it will die. But what happens is that the, um, the legislature, the Solicitor General, basically they have given themselves, you know, timelines or goalposts, if you even want to call it that, saying, okay, it, the powers are going to end on X date. So initially, when it first got tabled, this bill in July of 2020, um, they had an end date. I think they gave themselves a full year. Yes, because we came back in May to debate it. And so in order to extend it, you've got to put it through as a motion. And so it does get debated on. Uh, and then it gets voted on as well. And we did see there was a recorded vote back in May. And back in May, and this is 2021, of course, um, the expiration date for this bill was then December 1st of this year. And, you know, people get hopeful. You look at that and you're thinking, okay, great. Like they're going to finally stop, you know, ruling by, by, uh, you know, just with Doug Ford putting, saying, hey, we're going to impose this, we're going to impose that. But uh, unfortunately, they've extended it again now until March 28th through this motion eight. Right. And a recorded a recorded vote means that that uh, every vote is, as it suggests, recorded. So we know how every individual MPP voted uh, I or nay on a motion or a bill. That's a recorded vote. Correct. And in this case, it was done by voice, which means the speaker just says, you know, A's and nays. And he 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 or she listens intently and tries to make a judgment call as to whether there were more A's or nays shouting. So typically, and that's how procedurally it always goes like that. So um, the speaker will say, you know, um, will the motion carry? And then the PCs shouted, I, the opposition sent to what they're doing. They don't want to get angry uh, emails and phone calls. It's, to me, it indicates two things. One, it's, it's a major ca- character flaw, which is cowardice. So we have a bunch of MPPs that are cowards. And so they want to hide behind a voice vote rather than a recorded vote because they're not they don't have the courage to stand on their convictions. And number two, and perhaps more importantly, they have nothing but contempt 
for their constituents, uh, which is, I guess, all sadly uh, too predictable these days. Uh, Belinda, thank you so much. Please uh, take care of yourself, get well, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you so much, Richard. Always a pleasure. All right. When we come back, we'll speak with the associate professor in the Department of Chemistry at McGill University who is being denied federal grant money for his research because he's not woke. That conversation in three minutes. Continuing with the conversation, this is The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. An award-winning Canadian scientist says he's been refused two federal government grants for his research because of a lack of diversity, even though he's originally from India and has repeatedly suffered racism himself. Dr. Kaubampati is an associate professor in the Department of Chemistry at McGill University. Dr. Kaubampati, welcome. How are you? Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you tell me the, um, the nature of these uh, grants that you applied for and when? Well, let's see. The idea is that doing science is expensive, and so we require a lot of money to, to, to function. And in the last 15 years, I've raised about $7 million, which is a pretty good amount. You know, I'm not saying it's here or there, but that's an order of magnitude to do the level of science that we do in my area of science, which is experimental physical chemistry. Well, I've been applying for grants for about 15 years now, and the idea was it was always based upon scientific merit and the impact to the country of Canada, which is to say, how are you going to benefit the industry and train highly qualified personnel? Those are all straightforward questions we could answer. About two years ago, the, 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 the Canadian funding agencies began to ask us to write about diversity, inclusion, and equity, and we had to produce a strategic plan to to address that so-called problem. And, and if we did not write it the way they wanted to write it, then apparently it turns out they could actually deny us from even going to scientific peer review. So government bureaucrats who are not trained in science but are trained in gender studies and things like that will then go out and say, well, your experiment to build a new laser doesn't involve gender studies, so you will not even go for peer review. That's what happened to me twice in the last one year. It happened to me about a year ago and it happened to me about a month ago. And this happened to me my last two federal grants. In contrast, I'm actually funded by a corporate grant, which they never asked for uh, diversity, inclusion and equity because they cared about the excellence of the work. Imagine that. <laughs> Imagine that caring about the excellence of the work. So let me see if I understand uh, this. Um, with that research grant, presumably you would also be hiring research assistants. And if the research assistants, if there aren't enough of them of the right skin color, you're you're demonstrating that you're not being diverse enough. Is that the idea? Well, it's a strange question. And I admit to the, to the fact that I don't understand the answer because I've actually I've been denied twice. Whatever good answer I provided has been deemed so egregiously wrong that I'm apparently the wrong person to ask about how you can make an inclusive environment for people. Uh, I don't know who's making this stuff up, but I think it's people who are government officials with gender studies degrees that are deciding what are you doing? And now the interesting thing is it doesn't even matter 
if you are a minority or a woman or a gay or this, that, and the other, they don't care about that. They don't even care about your group. What they care about is the words that you write must be parroting the language of the politically correct, woke social justice warriors. If you do not parrot that language, you will not even get a look for science, which has never happened in a hundred years of funding. Never happened in a hundred years of funding in the West. Well, that's not true. Nazism and communism, those are the exceptions. And do we want to go down that route, the route of communism and Nazism? Are you able to perform your research based solely on the corporate grants or are you reliant upon the federal grants to conduct your research? I'm reliant on the federal grants and the federal grants are 95% of my funding. The fact that I have this corporate grant, I'm the first person in McGill to ever get this grant from, from the Sony corporation. And I'm the third person in all of Canada to ever receive a grant from Sony corporation. It was a very unusual and prestigious and lucrative thing. And I'm happy to receive it. And the wonderful thing is they didn't ask me about any of this business. It's just how can we improve the business of Sony by helping them learn about cutting edge technology? And so that's that's what happens on the flip side. But I need government funding. Most of us live off federal funding or provincial funding. And without that, our, we cannot be scientists. We simply cannot be scientists. So what does this mean for you and your research going forward? Are you going to have to leave leave Canada? Are you going to be a, uh, or are we all going to be a victim of the brain drain and lose you? Well, that is a good question, but I think America is as bad and England is as bad and Australia is as bad. This problem is actually throughout Anglophone society, not through European society, not through Francophone society, but it seems to come from Anglophone society. And I say this living in Montreal, yet myself having grown up American, it's fascinating to see how it comes throughout English culture, but not in Montreal as much. But if you live in Australia, it's going to be a huge deal. School there are woke they're teaching critical race theory they're teaching that men are bad boys are bad all this woke educational thing is happening throughout the not the west but anglophone west uh, have you given any consideration to maybe i don't know asking one of your woke friends to write the submission for the grant for you so that he can or he or she uh i don't know can sing from the correct uh, hymn book oh i have already done that but the problem is i don't have any colleagues who actually agree Ah, so the question is, who's better at making up? (laughs) Oh, dear. Okay. And I can't do it. I feel like Ben Franklin or Thomas Jefferson or who was my, no, 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 no. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was, um, it was uh, George Washington said, I cannot tell a lie or whatever. Like, I can't tell a right. lie. I can't fake this stuff. I can't, you know, I, there's certain things you, I can do. I can build you a laser, but I can't fake this stuff. And others of my colleagues are a little bit better at it than I am. So I've actually had them write sections for me. Ah, oh, dear. I'm, I'm terribly sorry for this uh, situation. And um, I, I hope you'll keep us up to date. I hope we can call on you again and, and uh, check in and, and see if there's any, uh, any new developments. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Dr. Calvin Potty is an associate professor in, Depart- in the Department of Chemistry at McGill University. Uh, when we come back, Walt Heyer lived as a woman for eight years, named Laura Jensen, before regretting and reversing his sex change. His story is next. The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. 
Welcome back. After what he describes as a misdiagnosis of gender dysphoria, Walt Heyer underwent gender reassignment surgery and lived for eight years as a woman named Laura Jensen before regretting and reversing his sex change. Walt, welcome to the program. How are you? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me on. I'm doing great. Could you uh, let us know what what led to your misdiagnosis of, of gender dysphoria? How old were you and, and what were you going through at the time? Yeah, let me uh, kind of clarify that term misdiagnosis. What, what I've always said was that they missed the proper diagnosis. They didn't like misdiagnose me. They just missed the what we call comorbidities and they do this with everyone. And um, so, you know, this this happens um, because people take um, gender dysphoria as actually the diagnosis that leads to giving hormones and surgery. And gender dysphoria is not, and let me repeat, is not a diagnosis for anything. Gender dysphoria is only a symptom of something that has yet to be addressed, whether it's bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, dissociative disorder, autogranophilia, or one of those. So for me, uh, I had what they call the dissociative disorder, and they said they diagnosed me with uh, gender dysphoria, which leads to the hormones and surgery. And if they would have diagnosed me with dissociative disorder, then they wouldn't have opted for hormones and surgery. They would have dealt with a dissociative disorder. So this is what, so it's not even um, a simple case it happens almost 100% of the time. Uh, and this is what's so exasperating about this whole process. I mean, I never, no one ever has changed their gender in the history of mankind. You can't change your gender. You can't change your sex. The only thing that you can do is actually change your persona. Write that down, look it up in the dictionary. That is what's accurate. Uh, we've been misleading people about uh, hormones and surgery changing their uh, gender sex. Um, I identified as a woman for eight years, but uh, I was never a woman at any time, and neither is Jenner or any of the other people who are making media uh, wearing a dress. They're just men in dresses uh, who change their persona. Uh, prior to your, your gender reassignment surgery, uh, were you being then raised as if you were a girl? Were, were you being dressed in, in girls' clothes? Well, I, I, my grandmother and I uh, were cross-dressing. She was helping me cross-dress from the time I was four years old. So I had basically been uh, doing this cross-dressing thing since I was an, almost an infant, you know, a four-year-old kid. What does a four-year-old kid know about the consequences of uh, uh, going through this whole process? They think they know what they're doing at four years old, but let me tell you, a four-year-old, I mean, this idea that four-year-olds can pick their gender is absolute insanity. So was she simply affirming what yeah. she she thought she wanted, or was she doing that on her own? Well, I, I think she, there was a combination of things. I think she was getting a thrill out of making, she was a seamstress, made dresses, and I think she enjoyed making me a dress, and I love being affirmed. The problem with this whole idea of putting a boy in a dress is the second you do that, and repeatedly do it and affirm them, what you're really doing is telling that child there's something wrong with them as a boy. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? 
President Biden's administration is making major decisions and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. You're not really, you know, the idea that you're telling they can become someone else is just totally false. But you're telling them that the only way you're going to be affirmed and be appreciated is if you're a girl, which this is where the insanity begins. If we were to spend as much time and as much energy and as much affirmation on telling boys that they're really wonderful boys and stop this insane nonsense about telling them they could become girls, we'd have a whole different generation of kids today. Walt Heyer is with us. He left. He lived as a woman for eight years uh, and then regretted uh, his uh, transition and then reversed his sex change. Uh, Walt, we'll take a quick time out. We'll, we'll come back and maybe also if I could get you to uh, to use the handset. I think you're on the hands free um, and we'll uh, we'll continue to talk about your uh, your journey, your uh, life as living as a woman for eight years before you decided to uh, re or detransition back with more of our conversation in three minutes. Just having a little chin wag on the Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. And we are back with Walt Heyer. The website is sexchangeregret.com. Sexchangeregret.com. And Walt uh, lived for eight years as a woman named Laura Jensen before regretting and then reversing his sex change. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the transition? Were you how old were you when you were placed on hormone uh, uh, blockers or home hormone uh, treatment, and then the actual um, uh, surgery? Yeah, well, I, I started taking cross gender hormones um, when I was about thirty years old, and I had my gender um, surgery, which they call gender surgery, which it's not. But um, I had the full regimen of surgery 10 years later uh, when I was 42. And then I identified as a female for eight years after that, until I was 50. And uh, you, you talk about how initially you were kind of giddy uh, after, you know, transitioning uh, with this fresh start. How soon after did you start to regret? Well, uh, I think what happens is you you think when when you're going through this process, you think it's the answer to all your problems, and that's why you commit to doing it. And uh, but it was probably years later when I started studying psychology uh, when I was going to become a therapist. Uh, I was at the university in California and studied psychology, and I started opening up the books in the library and reading about people who identify as a transgender uh, and have gone through the surgery. And I find that there are, they have mental disorders and diagnosable mental disorders. And then there are things like a dissociative disorder or separation anxiety. 
uh, or obsessive compulsive disorder, body dysmorphia, autogynophilia, which is one people don't talk about. So uh, there are many, many things that were noted when I was studying this that uh, led me to believe that uh, people who identify as a transgender person or diagnosed with gender dysphoria are being um, incorrectly diagnosed and improperly treated with hormones and and surgery because um, actually when you boil down this whole thing is that no one has ever become a different gender. It's not biologically possible to change your gender. It's not uh, medically possible through hormones and surgery to actually for a guy to become a girl. It just doesn't happen. Um, and I have a, a document in the state of California by the doctors who perform the surgery that admit uh, in Superior Court of California that they can't change someone's gender, that it's not medically possible, it's not surgically possible, it's not hormonally possible. And so what we really end up with is having someone who changes their uh, persona, which is their outward appearance, but nobody really has ever in the history of mankind ever changed their gender sex. Can you tell me what what ultimately led up to your decision to detransition? Yeah, the, like I said, the studying at the university, when I began to see uh, the things in the books that talked about uh, mental disorders, then I began to study mental disorders and I worked uh, in clinical situations in hospital, uh, a psych hospital and some other units and began to realize that everybody has that, that identifies as a transgender person has some underlying comorbidity. And, and the, the real effective way to help them is diagnose the underlying comorbidity and then treat that comorbidity. And you'll find that they will, like I did, begin to detransition because they'll find that they never needed the hormones of surgery in the first place. That's the critical part of this is right. that once you diagnose these underlying comorbidities, you can alleviate the issues of going through hormones and surgery. Uh, the, uh, the federal government in Canada is trying to pass legislation that would criminalize uh, conversion therapy. And, and I, I guess for some people, they think of conversion therapy as, you know, uh, you know, somewhere in the basement of an evangelical church. They're holding somebody down, uh, you know, maybe someone who's. Uh, a gay person, let's say, and they're, you know, trying to convert them, but there's far more to conversion therapy. What would you have benefited? What types of therapy do you think you might've benefited from before you transitioned? Well, the therapy that I would have benefited from uh, is someone telling me the truth, uh, which would be that someone sits you down and said, you know, you cannot change your gender sex. And this surgery is not going to change you. The hormones are not going to change you. No one can change you from a man into a woman. That, that would have been really helpful to start with. Um, and I, I, I don't know anyone that's ever had any conversion therapy. I've worked with thousands of people. And I, I've got, you know, uh, 10,000 emails in my inbox. I don't, nobody has ever contacted me and said they ever had this therapy you talked about. I don't know anybody that ever had it. I didn't. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? 
President Biden's administration is making major decisions and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. I'm talking about, I guess, the, the, some counseling that would have addressed some of the comorbidities. Well, um, gosh, you know, uh, how do you get to, to the point where you can call a comorbidity uh, some kind of uh, other than helping the person? I mean, if the person has a dissociative disorder and you treat the dissociative disorder, how is that harming the person? Exactly right. I, I, and that's, uh, as I see it, the problem with the proposed piece of legislation up here in Canada, that all of those types of uh, therapies, even those that are designed to address some of the underlying issues, even things like depression, uh, yes. could be criminalized under this under this uh, piece of legislation, Bill C-6. Um, Walt, we'll take another time. I'll come back and discuss further. Walt Heyer. Uh, and the uh, the website is sexchangeregret.com. Sexchangeregret.com. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. Back with Walt Heyer, who lived for eight years as a woman named Laura Jensen before regretting and reversing his sex change. The website is sexchangeregret.com. Do you have a a handle on the percentage of individuals who have undergone a sex change who then let you regret, as you did, regret their sex change? I don't think anybody has an accurate handle on it. Um, I do know that um, there are literally thousands of them. I know that there are uh, shows in in the UK where somebody has thousands in their group. I've had thousands come to me. Um, the only report that I've seen um, is comes out of the UK where they said um, they can document uh, 20% of the people um, that they uh, can identify as having detransitioned. I I think it's really tough because many of the people who detransition don't go to medical care. Uh, There's no recording of it. There isn't one person of the thousands of people I've worked with that are counted, including me, counted among people who regret. So, um, So the people aren't counted. So we really don't know. Talk to me about suicide rates among um, people who seek surgical reassignment. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, You know, Sweden is probably one of the leading uh, countries, and uh, it's because they do all the medical care for all of the citizens in the country. And so they have impeccable records that they keep. And what they have reported is that you're 19 times more likely to die by suicide after you change your identity uh, to transgender than you would if you hadn't changed your identity to transgender. 
So the transgender identifying people who go through the surgery and hormones are 19 times more likely to die by suicide than if you didn't. How do you respond to a critic who might say, well, that's because people who live life as a transgendered person uh, have all of these additional societal pressures. Perhaps they're discriminated against and treated poorly. That's a crock. That is an absolute crock. They are absolutely the most, you know, they're loved on, they're treated, they're elevated. Look at the laws. They're passing all kinds of laws. They get away with murder, quite frankly. they are the most kept, nurtured individual group in our society. And so that doesn't hold water at all. It's just total BS. So, so then uh, the idea here is that those, those suicidal tendencies were part of, um, I guess, an underlying condition. Comorbid. A yes. comorbidity that existed prior to the transition that were never, that never treated. That's exactly right. You see, what happens is, you know, you cut their genitals off, you fill them full of hormones, and you never address the underlying issues. And so the underlying issues are still there. All you have is a person who is now identifying as a transgender still has the same psychological, emotional, or sexual disorders. And I can tell you, 90% of the people that have contacted me are not homosexual. This is largely not a homosexual issue. Homosexuals loathe the idea of cutting their genitals off. These are mostly heterosexual individuals. This is a heterosexual primarily issue. And um, they are mostly struggling with autogynephilia or a transvestic fetish disorder. Some of them are just plain old cross-dressers that get caught up in the idea of going all the way and taking hormones and surgery. Not one of them actually needs hormones or surgery. This is probably like Frankenstein, if you want to get right down to it. The insanity behind this whole movement is just beyond my comprehension. I get emails every single day from people who are strong. I'm working with a guy right now who's 26 years old. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia, bipolar one disorder, and PTSD was under the care of a major medical institution in California. And they diagnosed him with gender dysphoria, cut his genitals off, did facial surgery. He contacted, he had that all done in March of this year. He contacted me 10 weeks ago and said, geez, they never should have done this to me. Can you imagine any clinical person doing surgery on somebody who's diagnosed with schizophrenia? I mean, that right there is totally insane on its face. And so now what we have is a medical malpractice case against the medical institution that wrongly cut off his genitals, cut off anybody's genitals who has any comorbidity that the doctor should lose his license and be jailed. Uh, A regular uh, guest on this program is Chris Elston, who's been traveling across Canada and now now the United States trying to raise awareness uh, about hormone blockers uh, being used on children. Uh, your, your thoughts on, on this practice, uh, it, because you had your home hormone uh, treatment after puberty. What are the, what do you believe are the, the dangers of these hormone blockers being used on, on children uh, either during puberty or before the onset of puberty? Yeah, well, they're very destructive. Um, they will ruin the child's life. 
They they will make them so that, uh, and I've run into this already. They they will make them so that they can't bear children after they regret having done this when they want to have kids. Uh, They they have so many complications from this. Uh, Sweden, I referenced just recently in the show, Sweden has come out and said they're not going to do this hormone blockers anymore to kids. It's just, uh, it wrecks their lives. We should take a page out of somebody who practices these policies. Sweden is leading the, the world in recognizing that these uh, hormone blockers are very dangerous, they're not reversible, and they should not be done. In fact, the hormone blockers were never intended to be used for people who struggle with their identity. They were actually designed for people whose uh, uh, puberty development was going too fast at too early an age. And the idea was to give it to these young people to slow it down and normalize it. But the big activists decided that they could use this to uh, ruin people's lives. And they're destroying them. Uh, This whole process is just ripping kids apart. And uh, they should not be giving hormone blockers to anybody at all. And so as a as a former transgendered person, someone who had the 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 transition uh, surgery, regretted it, detransitioned. What are you facing any sort of a a backlash for speaking out from well, from anyone? Um, You know, I you know, backlash. I don't pay any attention to backlash. I I don't really. uh, And and I use this, uh, you know, with a smile on my face. I don't give a rip what people think. Uh, If they want to know the truth, I'll speak it. If they want to keep lying to themselves about this nonsense of changing, quote, their gender that they can't change, if they want to be the insane ones, they can be the insane ones. I'm not going to follow that nonsense. Uh, sexchangeregret.com, the website, sexchangeregret.com. And uh, if, if people are struggling with, uh, you know, after undergoing a transition surgery and, and hormone um, treatment and so forth, uh, what, what do you offer them at sexchangeregret.com? Well, they will contact me and they'll, they'll, uh, we'll begin to identify what the underlying comorbidity is. What I always ask them is, what happened to you that caused you to not like who you were in the first place? And I can tell you that somewhere between 60 and 70% of the time, it's some kind of sexual abuse. Uh, the other cases are usually emotional, psychological abuse or physical abuse. Uh, many of these individuals were wrongly treated at a young age. I was sexually abused at eight years old. Uh, this is common. Um, it, unfortunately, most of the people who are sexually abused often do not want to talk about it until the individual who sexually abused them is deceased uh, because they still still fear from them and don't want to talk about it. Uh, and this is the case with me as well as many other people. Walt, I want to thank you for uh, spending some time with us. I appreciate uh, hearing from you. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much and have a great day. Walt Heyer, sexchangeregret.com. All right, that's it for me. My thanks to Jody, Jacob, and Brandon. I'll be back tomorrow to do it all over again, God willing. The Brian Crombie Hour is next. Be well, find joy, hold fast, be kind, but push back. I'll speak with you tomorrow at four. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken.
That's it. That's all. For more Richard Serrett Show, podcasts, blogs, and other stuff, go to saga960am.ca. Stop talking past each other and start talking with each other. We'll see you Tuesday afternoon at 4 on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960am. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. An official message from Medicare. A new law is helping me save more money on prescription drug costs. Maybe you can save too. With Medicare's Extra Help program, my premium is zero and my out-of-pocket costs are low. Who should apply? Single people making less than $23,000 a year or married couples who make less than $31,000 a year. Even if you don't think you qualify, it pays to find out. Go to ssa.gov slash extra help. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. An official message from Medicare. A new law is helping me save more money on prescription drug costs. Maybe you can save too. With Medicare's Extra Help program, my premium is zero and my out-of-pocket costs are low. Who should apply? Single people making less than $23,000 a year or married couples who make less than $31,000 a year. Even if you don't think you qualify, it pays to find out. Go to ssa.gov extrahelp Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services.